Let's pray together. Father, as we begin this new year, we uh, come to claim your covenant promises over our lives, over our homes, over our families, over our church, over our community, over our nation, and over our world. It's the promise of love, the promise of compassion, the promise of righteousness, the promise of faithfulness, the promise of restoration and revival. All these are ours and more in, the, in, the, in, in Christ Jesus. And he is the faithful Israelite who fulfilled the covenant on our behalf. He is the perfect sacrifice who endured the curse by hanging on the cross in our place. He is the loving husband constantly calling his people, his church, his bride to come back home. And so, Father, here we are this morning to gather to give you praise for loving us so much you sent your only son to save us. And we ask you to teach us now through your Holy Spirit how to respond by walking in righteousness so that we might experience all the blessings you have stored up for us in this new year. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Thanks, team. So over 20 years ago, I took a vow. I promised to let my life be a living demonstration of the gospel. From that point forward, I knew my life would no longer be my own. It was a vow I took as a pastor. And as a pastor, I was being called to live my life in a very public way before my church, before my community. Privacy was a luxury I would no longer be afforded. Every act, every word, every decision I would make would be subject to scrutiny and critique and opinion. Every mistake I made would be magnified. Every misstep amplified. Every lapse in judgment would result in consequences, not only for myself, but for those I love and serve as well. And it's been tempting over the years to respond to that kind of pressure by trying to be perfect and never let anyone see you sweat, right? To make your life a performance for the sake of others. But that is not the vow that I took. I promised to let my life be a living demonstration of the gospel, which means my life must be a testimony to God's grace in action. That means every part of my life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, has to be surrendered to God. And in addition, God calls me to be transparent, to share my life openly and honestly and humbly with you so that you hopefully get a chance to see what happens to a person as the gospel does its transforming work in and through them. This is what it means to be a pastor. And to use the Apostle Paul's language from the book of Romans, it means offering your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him as a spiritual act of worship. It's something I endeavor to do, you know, day after day, week after week, year after year. Now, I share all that by way of introduction to our new sermon series this year, which is called Ruin and Restoration, because we're going to meet a series of pastors, if you will, the so-called minor prophets of the Bible whose lives were living demonstrations of the gospel. Now, don't be fooled. Minor doesn't mean unimportant. Minor doesn't mean their impact was any less than the major prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and so on. Minor doesn't mean they had it easier 
or that their call was diminished in some way. Um, On the contrary, these pastors preached God's word at some of the most difficult moments in in, in Israel's history. They preached both in the northern and the southern kingdoms. They preached to people who had abandoned God. They preached to corrupt politicians and religious leaders. They preached to people who had better things to do with their time. They preached to people who engaged in all kinds of idolatry and immorality. They preached to people who didn't want to hear what they had to say. They put their lives at risk. They put their families at risk. They left homes and livelihoods in order to do what God had called them to do. And as was so often the case, they were called to what was known as enactment prophecy. Enactment prophecy. And what that is, 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 is that their lives would be lived in such a way that they became living metaphors for what God was going to do to and for his people. And of all the folks we're going to meet over these next 12 weeks, Hosea provides perhaps the best example of what I'm talking about. And that's where we're going to be this morning. So why study the minor prophets? I mean, it's a good question. It's certainly not common. In fact, I bet you can spend your entire life in churches, a lot of churches, and never hear a sermon preached from any of these books. It's not a critique as much as it is just an observation. These books aren't very positive and encouraging. They don't provide a lot of motivational material. They go on a coffee cup or a t-shirt or anything like that, right? They aren't great at self-help. And so why engage them at all? Well, first and foremost, as many of you know, we are a biblical church. That's one of our core values. We take that very seriously. We believe every word of Scripture is God-breathed and therefore worthy of our attention and study. And that's why we're committed to putting before you the whole counsel of God and preaching through all the different books of the Bible. But second, we believe these particular books ask a very important and relevant question question that a lot of people are asking in our world today. I imagine most of you are asking this question in our world today, and it's this. In a world that is falling apart, what is God doing to put it back together? Anybody asking that question? I sure am, yeah. In a world that's falling apart, What is God doing to put it back together? In a world that is full of violence, in places like Gaza, Ukraine, Azerbaijan, and in many of the inner cities of our own country, what is God doing to bring peace? In a world full of broken marriages and broken families and broken friendships, what is God doing to bring reconciliation? In a world full of pain and suffering and grief and sorrow, what is God doing to bring comfort? In a world full of deceit and lies and disinformation, what is God doing to bring truth? In a world full of corruption and greed and selfishness, what is God doing to bring purity and generosity? and humility. Believe it or not, these are the very same issues the ancient Israelites were dealing with in their own day. Why? Because humanity is always the same. We just have struggled from the very beginning, and we will continue to struggle until Jesus returns. And the reality was the world of the ancient Israelites was falling apart, and God sent Hosea and the rest of the minor prophets to tell them what he was doing to put it all back together. And because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we can trust him to do the same for us even in our time as well. Amen? Yeah, thanks be to God. So if you got your Bibles or Bible apps, and I hope you do, open up to the book of Hosea. 
If you're not familiar with the Bible, it's in the Old Testament. comes right after the major prophet books of Ezekiel and Daniel. And obviously, uh, on a Sunday morning, we don't have time to go through all 14 chapters. But I'm going to introduce this book to you by way of telling you three stories with the hope that you'll go back and you'll read this book for yourself. By the way, if you're looking for another great resource for this whole series, I encourage you to check out the Bible Project videos that are on YouTube. Um, they're awesome. They're like five to seven minutes. They, they give you an overview of each one of these books, and, it, and it's, it just, it'll help you as you dive in on your own or with your family or with your small group if you're going to study these books, which I encourage you to do. And the first story I want to share is the story of Hosea, the prophet. Hosea was called by God to prophesy in the northern kingdom of Israel uh, during the reign of Jeroboam II. Jeroboam was maybe the greatest of the northern kings. He was also her least faithful all right, he led God's people to worship Baal and all these other pagan gods. Uh, he set up idols all over the country. Um, he comes at the end of a long line of kings who had abandoned true worship, and God's patience had come to an end. And so he calls Hosea to offer his life, again, as this living demonstration of the gospel, this living demonstration of what God is going to do for Israel. Now, one would think that Hosea would initially be excited about that kind of call. Like this is, you know, he's a faithful man. He loves God. He's willing to sacrifice everything to serve God. But then look at what God actually calls him to do. Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 through 9. The Lord said to Hosea, Go and take, yourself, take, take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by fake, forsaking the Lord. Turn to your neighbor and say, no, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. All right. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the king, kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Jezreel, if you don't know the history of Jezreel, was a place where unbelievable violence had happened in Israel's history. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. And then you jump down a, 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 another verse or two. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, Call his name Not My People, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. I imagine on a list of like most popular names in Israel in those days that those names probably didn't show up, right? It's quite a family. And we 21st century pastors think we have issues, right? Thinks we have struggles. Give me a break, right? You got to be kidding me. Can you imagine being in Hosea's shoes? You want me to do what, God? You want me to marry a prostitute? And, and even if she's not a prostitute, the scholars are kind of divided on that question. You want me to marry someone who is unfaithful? whose heart is not sold out to you? You want me to have children with this woman? Children who will also be unfaithful? And you want me to name them what? <laughs> Don't you know they'll be bullied by their friends? They'll be shamed in our community? They'll hate my guts? On some level, Hosea had to believe that his life was ruined. 
All his best laid plans laid to waste. I can guarantee you this was not his plan for his life. As a faithful Israelite, Hosea wanted to marry someone who shared his commitment, raised children who would love and follow God. He wanted to give them names of love and respect and honor. He wanted them to be embraced by their community as examples of faith. That's what any faithful parent would want for their family. And yet, tragically, this isn't even the worst part of Hosea's story. His wife turns out to be unfaithful. She sleeps with several other men, prostitutes herself out to the point where she actually sells her body to the highest bidder. And Hosea has every right to divorce her and walk away. The shame and pain that she has brought upon him and their kids must have been unbearable, and yet God calls him to take her back in. Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. And so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, and so I will also be to you. The image here is that of a slave block, a market for human trafficking. Let that sink in for a moment. I mean, can you imagine the faith it took this man to go down to this terrible place and search for his wife? And when he finds her and sees her broken condition, beaten and abused, naked and ashamed, he must have wept bitterly. He knows what she's done. In fact, everybody in the community probably knows what she's done. And still he obeys God, not angrily, not begrudgingly, not resentfully. He speaks lovingly and tenderly to her as he calls her back to faithfulness. And in this way, his life becomes a living demonstration of the gospel. For in this way, he is modeling what God God has planned for his people. Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. This is God speaking about what he will do for his people. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. You see, God is so faithful, friends. And his ultimate plan for Hosea and his family, just as it is for us and our families, is not ruin, but restoration. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, the book of Hosea tells a second story. And it's the story of Israel. It's intertwined with Hosea's story, right? The northern kingdom, as I said, hits its peak under Jeroboam II. She was an economic powerhouse, a military machine. Jeroboam had expanded her territory significantly. He cemented alliances with her powerful neighbors. He ruled over this apparent golden age. However, it was all a house of cards. There was, it was rotten to the core. In addition to false worship, there was all kinds of political corruption and economic 
economic injustice, neglect of the poor and the powerless. Regular, ordinary people were mistreated and abused. It was a violent, brutal time that signaled a kingdom already in significant decline and headed towards ruin. And Hosea 4, 1 through 3 sort of gives you a little bit of a picture. In fact, the whole chapter gives you the picture, but we'll just read the first few verses. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all the bounds. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. Even the the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea are taken away. In addition to what we just read, the entire chapter, like I said, it contains this litany of crimes that Israel, of which Israel is guilty. All of them related to the blessings and the curses uh, that were first laid down in the book of Deuteronomy by Moses when he foretold what would happen to Israel should they ever forsake God's law. The northern kingdom was breaking every one of the Ten Commandments. Their priests and their leaders were leading them deeper and deeper into sin. They had merged their worship with that of the pagan nations around them. Things were so bad, they clearly didn't even know God at all. They had forgotten all about him. You see, when the Bible talks about knowing God, friends, it's not describing knowing about God. Anybody can know about God. The New Testament says that even the devil and his demons know about God. No, the word used here in Hebrew is yada. It has to do with intimate, personal knowledge of God. It's relational language. God makes it clear that he could care less about their religion. He could care less about the number of sacrifices that they bring or the rituals that they engage in. He's not interested in a people who are just going through the motions. No, what God wants is a relationship. A deep, intimate, intensely personal relationship with his people, which is why he is absolutely brokenhearted and righteously angry over their unfaithfulness. They have prostituted themselves with other gods and other nations rather than remain faithful to the one who called them up out of Egypt, the one who saved them from bondage and slavery, the one who gave them a land and a promise and a purpose. And even though God has every right, therefore, to abandon them and forsake them and break the covenant and walk away, what does God do? He remains faithful. He remains faithful. Hosea 14, 4 through 7. Listen to what God says. Some of the most beautiful words in the book. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Is there anything greater than the faithfulness of God? No. Anything more glorious than than God's steadfast love for us? Anything more awesome than every sense of that word? It is incredible, friends, that despite Israel's complete and utter disdain for the covenant that God has made with them, his ultimate plan, just like it was for Hosea and his family, just like it is for us and our families, right? just like it is for our nation, is not ruin but restoration. That's what God's plan is for us. And that brings me to the final story in this book. It's the most important one, and it's the story of God. 
You know, sadly, we have such a weak understanding of God these days. In fact, I'd argue there's no knowledge of God uh, in much of our land, even in many of our churches, sadly enough. Some of us have uh, this conception of God as this sort of distant deity somewhere out there in the universe that we should only call on in case of emergencies. Some of us think of God like a lovesick boyfriend or girlfriend, always there to affirm us, always there to meet our needs, never there to confront us or talk to us about our sin. Some of us think of God as a stern, overbearing judge who's just sitting on his throne waiting to strike us with lightning when we make a mistake. All of that is nonsense, of course. God is so much greater than we could possibly imagine, so much more loving than we can ever dare hope, so much more faithful than we can ever dare to believe. He is so strong and powerful, he is willing to make Make himself vulnerable. Listen to the heartbreak of God and, and let the Holy Spirit impress upon you how deeply God grieves over our sin. He says, when Israel was a child, right? This is Hosea 11, 1 through 4, and then 8 through 9. God willing to put himself out there to experience ruin as he pursues his people. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim how to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, and I bent down or, or, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them, and I fed them. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebaim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Friends, because God has freely chosen to be in relationship with the creatures who bear his image, and because he has bound himself to us in faithfulness, God experiences pain and suffering on a level we simply cannot fathom or understand. I mean, when you and I are betrayed by someone we love, like a spouse or a child, it utterly wrecks us, right? Now imagine that happening to you billions and billions of times over each and every day for millennia. That's what God experiences. And, and yet he simply cannot and will not let us go. He has promised to love us to the end. He has promised to pursue us to the end. He has promised to be faithful to us to the end. Make no mistake, friends. On the cross, God experienced a ruin so profound. He cried out that he had been forsaken. He experienced a suffering so deep. It wasn't just physical or mental or emotional. It was existential, right? He experienced a weight so heavy and overwhelming, the weight of the world's sin, that it tore his body to shreds. He experienced a death so dark, it plunged him to the depths of hell. He became sin, the Bible says, literally, not just figuratively. He took on the full force of the curse that God laid on those who broke his covenant. He paid the full ransom to redeem us from the slave block of sin. He satisfied every demand of the old covenant law in order to set us free. And why would God do such a thing? Because his ultimate desire for us is not ruin. It is restoration. 
right? It, it, is, it is redemption. It is, it is living with us in glory forever. That is God's desire, and he is faithful, and he will not let his Holy One remain in his ruined state. No, God raises Jesus from the dead as a guarantee of the promise that he makes to all those who call upon his name. Jesus is just the first, friends, to be restored, and one day we too will experience that restoration in full when he comes again. Our ruined bodies will be changed in the twinkling of an eye at the sound of the trumpet, the Bible says. Our broken bodies will be healed and made whole when Jesus returns. Our sinful natures will be put to death once and for all, and we will be raised to new life as Christ himself was raised to new life, this time in glory, because God always keeps his promises. God is always faithful. He was faithful to Hosea. He was faithful to Israel, and he's faithful to us. Amen indeed. I'm going to ask our worship team. Y'all are starting off the year quite well, by the way, with your amens. All right. Good job. Let me ask the worship team to come back up as they do. Let me ask you this question as we kind of close our time this morning. What's your story? What's your story? Is your story one of ruin? Is your story one of restoration? Some combination thereof? Right? Do you know how the book of Hosea ends? It ends with a postscript to the reader. People like you and me. It says this, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Katie read it for us earlier. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. Friends, has the Holy Spirit made you wise? Has the Holy Spirit given you understanding? Has the Holy Spirit given you discernment? Can you discern right from wrong, righteousness from wickedness, good from evil, ruin from restoration? Do you walk in the ways of the Lord or do you stumble in them? Now hear me clearly. We're not talking about the pressure to be perfect. We're not talking about legalism or earning your way into God's favor. We're not talking about pretending or going through the motions. We're talking about your life being a living demonstration of the gospel, just like Hosea's life. All right? That's what it means to walk in the ways of the Lord. It's to let, let people see the grace of God shine through the brokenness and the cracks of your life. It's letting them see how God has been at work in you, healing you, restoring you, renewing you, redeeming you. It's about opening your life up, opening your heart up, sharing with folks all the brokenness so that they can also see all the beauty. That's what it's about. All right? And as we do that, we walk in the ways of the Lord. Does that describe you? If it does, then walk on up to this table. Walk on up and receive the gifts that Christ has for you. Walk on up and taste both the ruin and the restoration of our Savior. Walk on up and taste Christ's saving death until he comes again. Jesus' life is a living demonstration of the gospel. Amen? He shows us his brokenness so that we can see his beauty. He shows us his death so that we can see his life. And then he offers us this meal to remind us over and over again of how much he loves us. 
On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, his followers. He said, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, Jesus took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink of it, I want you to remember me. Again, the Apostle Paul says every time we eat the bread and every time we drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's saving death until he comes again. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. What a way to start the new year. Amen. Praise be to God. I'm going to ask our elders to come forward to serve. Our kids are coming in to join us for communion. Friends, this table is for God's people. If you are here and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I just want to encourage you, this table's for you. Even if you maybe don't feel like it this morning or maybe you're coming in and you're struggling this morning, go ahead, Greg. Um, This table is for you, friends. Um, If you're here this morning and you're just checking us out or you're not sure or you've got questions about whether, whether, you know, you know, about God or the gospel or any of these things, I want to encourage you. Let, let those things, let these pass you by. Come talk to us after the service. We'd love to chat with you more about it and chat with you and talk with you. Friends, again, these are God's gifts for God's children. Just a word of uh, instruction. Our gluten-free stations are Greg right here. Oh. All the way on the end, the crackers. Right, this is gluten-free right here, the bread, right? Yes, Greg has the gluten-free. This is Greg. This is Sarah. This is gluten-free. This is not. All right? Don't let that throw you. And then our brother Scott here over on the end in green as well. And then the rest of the stations are uh, cracker, glutened, I guess. Anyway. (laughs) Take some time. Ignore me. Prepare for the table. And come as you feel led. Thanks be to God.